You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. In 1917, the red light district of New Orleans was called Storyville. I'm ready now. This is the story of a photographer and a prostitute and the prostitute's daughter. I know what to do. Leave me alone. Louis Mal's Pretty Baby. Hello, I'm Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to the second episode of Girls, Guts, and Shallow. I'm joined today by one of my dearest, closest friends, Jory Sheriff, and we're going to be talking about the 1978 film Pretty Baby, directed by Louis Maul and starring Brooke Shields. I thought this was an appropriate uh, follow-up to last episode which centered around Alice Sweet Alice, which was Brooke Shields' first film. So, Jory, do you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Hi, Annie. Um, My name is Jory. Annie and I went to school together. I, um, I work at the Jewish Museum and also just love watching movies with Annie. And we're actually recording today in Jory's kitchen. We only have one microphone, so we're going to be passing it back and forth. There's going to be a little, some ambient sound of birds outside and children playing, uh, because if I waited for the production conditions to be perfect every time I was going to film an episode every week, I would never get anything done. So Pretty Baby um, is a very controversial film, historically, and it's controversial mainly because Brooke Shields is... 12 years old when this was filmed and there are multiple scenes in this movie where she is nude. The story centers around a child sex worker, Brooke Shields, and obviously that's a very disturbing and controversial subject matter. It had generally pretty positive reviews when the film came out, but it was met with a lot of controversy, um, particularly from women who felt that the film was exploitative. Um, Brooke Shields actually stands by the film. She did an interview with Vanity Fair on the 40th anniversary of the film, where she basically stands by the film and says that it was one of the most positive production experiences of her entire career and that she's still very proud of the performance. And we first started, Jory and I first started talking about Pretty Baby because uh, Jory had mentioned the film and mentioned that Brooke Shields actually wrote her undergraduate thesis on the film. I actually, I have not had a chance to read it, although it looks like you can apply to read it um, online. She wrote this in 1987 when she was an undergraduate at Princeton, 
and it's called The Initiation from Innocence to Experience, the pre-adolescent adolescent journey in the films of Louis Malle, Pretty Baby, and Lacombe Lucien. So the title of the film uh, comes from a Tony Jackson song, Pretty Baby, which is actually used in the soundtrack. Um, it uh, takes place in 1917 uh, in a brothel in the Storyville district of New Orleans when prostitution was still legal. So it centers around the last legal months of that brothel and Brooke Shields is coming of age in that environment. Her mother is a sex worker and it is sort of just assumed that Brooke Shields, uh, her character is Violet in the film, will come into that life as well eventually. There's really no question about it. It's just kind of her fate. Uh, and it centers around her coming of age in as a child sex worker and also her relationship with the photographer E.J. Belloc. He was a photographer working in New Orleans in the early 20th century. And he made most of his living from photographing architecture. But after his death, his photographs of sex workers in the Storyville district in New Orleans were discovered and they were bought by the photographer Lee Freelander, where they started to enjoy a new life. Um, his photographs are still exhibited pretty frequently. I've seen them in exhibits that center around representations of sex workers. They're generally thought to be, and um, actually Susan Sontag wrote an essay about his photographs, they're generally thought to be very sympathetic and realistic representations of the women in them. And it's actually believed that some of the women may have commissioned these portraits. So it's the film obviously takes many liberties with his life story. His life story is not very well known, actually. So um, it's quite fabricated. So I think a lot of my perception about the film was based off of conversations that were happening around it that came out, you know, around the time of its release from media. Annie and I looked at some images and some articles around this time. There's a really fascinating People magazine cover from 1978 where Brooke is is on the cover and it says, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields 12 stirs a furor over child porn in films. And she's looking very sort of angelic and innocent. She's sitting in a wicker chair holding flowers, wearing a white dress. And I think just the idea of child sexuality is such a lightning rod for debate and it really struck a cultural touchstone for a lot of people um there is an excerpt in the people magazine article where she's talking about being interviewed by playboy magazine which in and of itself is a very strange concept because she was a child um so in terms of being sexualized i think that just in and of itself is is pretty alarming. But when Playboy asked her what good in bed meant to her, Brooke nonchalantly replied, quote, when I'm sick and I stay at home from school, propped up with lots of pillows, watching TV, and my mom brings me soup, that's good in bed. 
So having just watched the film and contrasting it to this sort of very innocent, naive <laughs> statement about, you know, what it means to be good and bad is just very, it's, it's sort of alarming, actually. Yeah. Um, and in that same article, they, the author um, emphasizes how childlike Brooke Shields is and how she's really just a a normal 12-year-old girl. And we get into a little bit her tumultuous relationship with her mother as well, who's always championed this film and has stood by her decision to let Brooke Shields make the film. She uh, told Brooke Shields, you know, whoever doesn't like what you do, you know, fuck them, basically. I actually think that's a direct quote. (laughs) So... They have both stood by this film, even though Brooke has sort of – she's written a book about her tumultuous relationship with her mother and maybe how her mother was a little bit exploitative of her career. I thought actually that the People magazine article is more – is creepier and more exploitative than the actual film. Um, I haven't seen this movie in years. I saw it with my mother when I was a lot younger. My mother was extremely permissive and let me watch anything. And that's kind of where my uh, fascination with films like this comes from. And I had no memory of what my impression of this film was. So before we talked about it, um, I asked Jory, what she felt instinctually about a 12-year-old child being shown nude in a film and playing a child sex worker. And Jory, what was your, what, how, what was your initial reaction there before we watched the movie? I was extremely skeptical about someone so young handling subject matter in this way, even though we know that this is a reality or it was a reality for young children of this period but I think initially I, I view a you know a 12 year old girl um I just feel very um removed and my instinct is to feel protective yeah I mean that is my instinct as well and I was very worried about watching this and being upset by it as someone who has experienced those things of being sexualized from a very young age. And I think that a lot of uh, women can relate to that. And I think that there's an initial gut reaction there of seeing a child portrayed sexually. So Roger Ebert in his review of the film just after it was released, I think he gave it a three out of four stars. He says, pretty baby has been attacked in some corners as child porn. It's not. It's an evocation of a time and a place and a sad chapter of Americana. The ragtime music and the blues that fill its soundtrack take on a deeper meaning in the context of the story. And we are reminded that the artists who sang, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans, knew very well, and perhaps for that reason, missed it less than their listeners. I found this quote really interesting, but of course, I was still quite skeptical because we're still coming from a male perspective here. So I was in, I was very anxious to watch it for myself and see how I felt about the portrayal of uh, Brooke Shields here. It was directed by Louis Maul, as we've said, who had garnered controversy with his other films and his other depictions of sexuality. 
It was written by Louis Mall and Polly Platt. So we're not completely coming from a male gaze perspective here. So I think that that's interesting to keep in mind. And actually, we see this again um, with Alice Sweet Alice, which I talked about last week, which was written by Alfred Soule and Rosemary Ritfo. So there is a an input in both these films about the actual experience of womanhood. And I think that that is really present in the story here. I don't think that this film could have been completely made without any input from people who have actually experienced the sexualization that you experience as a woman. Now let's start to talk about the plot and get into some themes here. The film opens, we see kind of a dark New Orleans uh, landscape here and the pretty baby text over the screen, which I just have to note for a second that I love the title text. Um, it's just so like ornate and uh, girly and, you know, it's reminds me a little bit of the film um, Baby Doll, which is based on a Tennessee Williams play. And there is an element here just like in Tennessee Williams of the Southern Gothic, um, seeing as it takes place in New Orleans. And there are a lot of themes of the grotesque in this film, which repeat again and again in Southern Gothic narratives. The opening scene shows a woman either – it's it's sort of um, opaque in a way. She is either – in ecstasy or moaning in pain it's hard to tell in the first couple moments of the film and the camera pans to to brooke shields violet in the, in the movie and she's witnessing this other woman's expression what she's going through as the camera zooms out we realize that this woman is giving birth and it completely um, completely changed my perspective almost instantly. Yeah, and the first shot we see before we even see her, the woman's face, is Brooke Shields looking on in horror, like abject horror, right? And she's got such an innocent, beautiful face. And the woman in the scene who's giving birth is uh, Susan Sarandon. So Susan Sarandon is also in this film. She plays Brooke Shields' mother. Uh, she is a sex worker named Hattie. And we see that she's giving birth. And like Jory was saying, it kind of automatically sets up this uh, dichotomy between pleasure and pain automatically leads us to think about the pain of womanhood. The sex workers certainly must fake a great amount of the pleasure that they pretend they're experiencing with their clients. And like you said, we don't know right away if that's what's happening and if Brooke Shields is watching this woman work um, or if something really terrible is happening to her. And I found that really significant because there is... There's kind of like a, a joke, um, just a cultural joke on the idea of children hearing their mothers having sex and thinking that their dad is, is hurting her. There are also, I want to point out immediately in this film, themes of race in the South because we see 
um, a woman who is a uh, mammy figure who is helping Susan Sarandon give birth. And this, we cannot see this scene without thinking of Gone with the Wind, where Scarlett O'Hara is giving birth and Mammy is helping her to give birth. We also can't look at this scene without thinking of Manet's Olympia, right? Because that painting depicts a sex worker. And the sex worker is laying naked in her place of business, we assume. And there is a, a black woman leaning over her and attending to her. The next scene we see, um, Brooke Shields, Violet, is sliding down the banister of the brothel. And immediately I was very struck by that. It's a very childlike, innocent thing to do. And... In the face of all of these extremely mature situations, we are, I believe as the viewer, is supposed to remember that this is a little girl. She then starts a conversation with um, the piano player at the brothel, whose name is Clog. He's also known as the professor at his piano. It's played by Antonio Fargus. So... Violet, automatically, there's this relationship set up between her and the professor, Clog. Um, and I kind of saw this. She, she starts talking to him as he's playing at the piano, and she's very proud that her mother has had a baby boy. And she's telling all the other sex workers in the brothel that uh, she's had, that her mother has had a, a baby boy and she's going to have a little brother. And she tells Clog this. And he says, uh, pretty baby born against his will into this cruel, cruel world. There's a lot of themes here about free will. And there's immediately a Shirley Temple-esque relationship set up here. Um, Shirley Temple famously appeared in a few films with um, Bojangles, uh, the actor Bojangles, um, whose real name was Bill Robinson. Um and there's so much scholarship about that out there. I, I don't want to, um, you know, reduce it to, to one sentence here. Uh, but the relationship between Bojangles and Shirley Temple in those films is one of an older African-American man being very uh, emasculated and... Uh, having these like cutesy little dance numbers with Shirley Temple are actually like pretty disturbing scenes. Uh, although Bill Robinson was an amazing performer and dancer. I cannot help but think of that relationship when I look at the relationship between Violet and Clog in this film. Clog is an African-American man working in this white brothel. We don't know what his status is. We don't know if he is paid to work there. We don't really know what his deal is, um, but he is an ever-present force in in the brothel. Um, and he kind of acts as almost the voice of reason in a lot of situations. Um, he's kind of portentous. There are a lot of 
shots that are held on his face and his reaction to things that are happening in the house. Um, And he brings about a lot of themes of free will and autonomy in this film because we are we as viewers are very torn between if Violet is an autonomous being or if she is a child that we need to protect. And we're pulled in those directions over and over again. And I believe that Clog's presence as a character um, is there to sort of remind us of the illusion of free will. Because what other choice does this character have but to have to to take this job as a piano player in a brothel we first meet madame nell who is the the madame of the house she's awoken by 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 violet and she immediately she asks for absinthe the first thing in the morning and just she is probably the most um haggard woman I've ever seen <laughs> she she has not washed her makeup off a day in her life um she also you sort of get the impression that this woman is a straight shooter she has seen it all she it's it's sort of presumed that perhaps she was a sex worker in her in her youth um and that she you know, has been a part of this world for a long time. She has very sort of quippy one-liners throughout the film that make me think that, you know, the other women in the house really understand how much wisdom and, you know, how much life experience Madame Nell truly has. Um, I think she cares for Violet um, but she also views her as as you know a, a, another way another vehicle for income and I think throughout the movie we're really we really want Madame Nell to protect Violet but we also appreciate the sense of autonomy that Madame Nell places on Violet at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a really smart observation. I think that I was so torn the entire film about if I liked Madame Nell or not. I feel like in a lot of ways she's doing what she knows and what she's always known. Um, At the same time, there is a level of exploitation and complicity in the way that she treats the women that work there and especially the Violet, a young girl. Um, It's already set up that she is an addict, right? We see her drinking absinthe in the morning. She's doing cocaine in the morning. Um, This woman's she's seen a lot. (laughs) So her drug use, I feel kind of obviously points out that she's been through a lot in her life and she's kind of the she represents the end of this era um she is the last legal madam in new orleans this is when we meet ej Bullock, 
Um, he shows up to the brothel wanting to photograph one of the sex workers. Uh, Balak is played by Keith Carradine. And Madame Nell thinks he's a, a loon. <laughs> she, you know, is saying it's too early in the morning. My girls are not ready to work. And he just wants to photograph one of them. And he decides to photograph Hattie, Susan Sarandon, Violet's mother. And he also sees... Uh, Susan Sarandon getting in a very heated argument with a, a John who is wrestling her to the ground to take off the emerald earrings that he gave her the night before. Uh, he wants them back. So they get into a very violent altercation and Bullock just watches. His complicity is called into attention almost immediately. So Jory, do you want to say a little bit about Balak as a character and what you thought of him? I think, well, I'll backtrack in, in a second, but I think you and I came to the conclusion towards the end that he ultimately was a quote-unquote nice guy. Um, in the beginning, I was sympathetic to him. He seemed to treat the women with respect. He was um, conscious of whether or not they were fully dressed and asked to, he would, you know, ask to, he would announce himself before walking in, into rooms where people were dressing. Um, he was polite to Madame Nell. Um, he treated Violet like a, like the child that she really was. He, I don't think in the beginning lusted for her um, and really refused also the um, he, he really refrained from having a sexual relationship with the women in the house and was purely there to photograph and to document so maybe this also fed into you know this idea of him as just simply an onlooker I think throughout the course of the movie his role becomes more lecherous but in the beginning we are expected i think to to view him in a sort of neutral way yeah i <laughs> <laughs> even though i think he was immediately creepy yeah he was fine. definitely immediately creepy but i think you're right i think we are supposed to have a certain amount of identification with him in the beginning and he presents himself as this very respectful person. Um, and then we'll see later that perhaps he's more, perhaps he's only respectful because he's intimidated by the sex workers. And later when he develops a relationship with Violet, I think he's he wants to be the one who's in control. So this is when we start to see in scenes during the brothel parties that happen at night, that Violet is being noticed and hit on by the Johns who come to the brothel. Um, and again, right, she's only 12 years old. But they're starting to take notice of her. And it's starting to be decided when she will start working. And Balak uh, is just watching these interactions when they happen. He's now hanging out there all the time. Uh, taking photographs and he's complicit and everyone around them is complicit to this child being 
taken advantage of immediately. And Madame Nell even offers for a John to buy time with Violet and he who's a, a John who's uh, hitting on Violet and um, he says, you know, kind of disgusted, like, no, I'm just playing around. I wouldn't actually have sex with a little girl. There's an interesting scene where Belloc is taking mother-daughter portraits of Hattie and Violet and they look so much alike here, Susan Sarandon and Brooke Shields, and there's definitely a comparison being drawn that, you know, Brooke Shields or Violet will eventually become Hattie, and we're going to see that later, too. Uh, and in this scene, Brooke Shields starts, I should say Violet, <laughs> starts messing with the photography equipment, and blocks negatives and he slaps her across the face and she's been we've seen her slapped across the face by hattie before but she's much more upset by billock slapping her across the face she almost looks like she's used to it when her mother does it to her but when billock does it it's extremely egregious to her um and there's a very strange shot of billock leaning over violet as she cries after this slap and he i don't know he almost sort of looked happy to me like that he provoked happy that he provoked such an extreme response from her that it meant that she actually felt something and i think this was in a way intriguing for him and it also meant that he could then jump in and apologize and sort of be there as a protective figure for her which seems to be his deal <laughs> yeah this is when i started to get creeped out by him now we see the sec the other sex workers in the brothel coaching violet and giving her advice on her first time with a client and some very interesting lines happen here uh one of the women says that it should be like a rape Right? They're telling her that she needs to act like she doesn't want it because this is part of the appeal is that she's this young virgin. Uh, so she needs to act like she she's not innocent because she grew up in a brothel. She knows what sex is. She knows what prostitution is. But they're telling her she, you need to act innocent. That's what they want. And you need to act like you don't know what's happening, but you also need to act like you enjoy it such a classic virgin whore dichotomy playing out here um i just found literally yeah i just found the line it should be like a rape extremely jarring and there's like no pretense here like the the women just you know they tell it like it is and then we see the very probably the most disturbing scene to me um, where Violet is brought out like a virgin sacrifice with men carrying her on, what do you call that thing? It's, it's like a platter. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like a sacrificial altar and these two, they're holding sparklers and they're carrying her and she's in like a bridal outfit and they're saying, you know, this is the virgin sacrifice. 
And this is when the bidding process on her virginity begins. Do you want to talk a little bit about your impressions of that scene? The scene was incredibly traumatic and upsetting to watch, I think. She is placed upon this small stage and the camera pans out to the crowd and you just see these men's faces, really just their eyes looking at her and it just feels so scary and so real. You really are afraid for her even though she doesn't actually look afraid because she has known that this day was coming. She's prepared for it. She knows what to say. She knows how to act. But as a viewer, I think you can't help, and also as a woman, can't help but put yourself in in Violet's position, remembering what it feels like to be 12, to be very... I know it's different for everyone, but to be you know, simultaneously in, endeared by the idea and curious about the idea of sex, but also sort of afraid of it at the same time. And there's so much language built up around what it means to be a virgin and to have sex for the first time that, of course, all of those feelings come rushing back. During the bidding process, uh, when all of these men are shouting out numbers and prices for Violet's virginity, the camera lingers on Clog's face as this is happening. And it does not turn away from him. As these men are shouting out different numbers, as the numbers start to increase, Clog's face becomes more and more distressed and upset. Again, I think about here free will and autonomy. Being that the film is set in 1917, that, and Clog looks like he's maybe, I want to say, like early 40s. And it's possible that the implication here is that he is remembering his own when, when he was bid on, on the auction block. There has to be some kind of relationship between these two scenes happening here or these these two elements happening here clog's face as violet is being bit on again i feel that clog is being used as a, a harbinger of doom um or maybe not of doom but of complicity like a, a harbinger of the complicity of the cruelty of men to exploit people men and women to exploit people after this very intense scene with Clog, um, the bidding really heats up and a wealthy man bids on Violet for $400 in cash. I should say before this, a man tries to, to bid on Violet for $300 and asks Madame Nell if he can give her a check and she's basically like, Seriously? Absolutely not. Like, what am I going to do? I think she says, what am I going to do with the check? Which yeah. is hilarious. Fuck you, pay me. <laughs> this wealthy man wins Violet. The way he looks at her is sort of sad, actually. 
I could have sworn, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, that his eyes sort of well up a little. I don't know. I could be projecting. But um, in any event, he carries Violet sort of like a baby in his arms up this big staircase to the room. Um, And the other children who live in the brothel with Violet I don't think that they're her siblings, but there are other children who live there. Um, sort of wait outside of the room, just watching and listening and trying to figure out what's you know what's going on. He inches towards Violet and slowly starts taking off his clothes, and she does to me look frightened. She backs away, and I don't know if she is acting because she knows, again, what she's supposed to be doing and how she's supposed to be behaving. So I don't know whether that is that is genuine or something that she's performing. The movie doesn't show the scene, which I am actually, like the actual act of Violet having, you know, losing her virginity for the first time, um, which I'm actually very thankful for. Yeah, and we cut to the children outside her door and we hear Violet scream, like this blood-curdling scream. It's an extremely upsetting scene to watch. Um, But again, like Jory was saying, like we don't know if this is genuine or if this is part of the act that she was talking about with the other sex workers. I think it's obviously purposely ambiguous in that way. Um, And again, we're led to think about these themes of free will and how free are any of these people in this situation so we also see the other sex workers downstairs as this is happening and everybody looks like they feel like shit (laughs) um they all look like they know that what's happening is terrible and the john leaves kind of in a huff and the women all run upstairs and i do also want to note that one of the sex workers is played by barbara Steele, who is a uh giallo icon and um has been in a lot of uh mario bava films uh such as uh black sunday um and tassel of blood and we're gonna she'll she'll definitely come up in this podcast i thought just thought it was interesting that she was in this movie at all And they all run to her and they all think that she's dead because she's laying motionless on the bed. And then she gets up and she starts laughing and saying, you know, oh, I could have been dead up here. You all left me. And she's like laughing and crying at the same time because she's in pain. But she's also happy to be part of this group. She there's like this initiation by trauma, which I thought was really interesting because I often feel like that. Like, part of becoming a woman is experiencing trauma. Yeah, definitely. There's sort of this cultural myth of the idea of, you know, losing your virginity for the first time and then becoming a part of this quote-unquote sisterhood that you have something to share with your older friends, getting your period for the first time, all of these sort of, as you were saying, initiations into womanhood. She's in pain, but also, I think, so proud and happy to have something in common with these other women. Yeah, and again, uh, just like the beginning scene where we couldn't tell 
uh, Susan Sarandon's Pleasure from Pain, there's this idea of the association of womanhood with pain and the duality between pleasure and pain that women often have to grapple with. Um, Sex is pleasurable, but getting your period and giving birth is extremely painful. And And having sex for the first time can be painful as well. Yeah, right. And there's one cannot exist without the other. Now we're going to talk about the infamous bathtub scene in Pretty Baby. Violet is taking a bath, and Madame Nell opens the door without her consent, and... Violet stands up and covers herself with a towel, and Madame Nell has a a John with her that wants to buy Violet. And she's toting her off as a virgin to any John that comes, <laughs> uh, it, even though she's not anymore. And she, Madame Nell forces Violet to take the towel away from her body, and the John stares at her prepubescent body, and Madame Nell says... Look at her. She's pure as the driven snow. And we don't see much of Brooke Shields' body here. Um, Apparently in any scene where she's nude, she was wearing a body stocking. That's what it said on Wikipedia. Uh, It's really quick. It's a really quick scene, but it's like the most infamous scene in the movie. And there's a close-up on her face as she, you know, smiles this come-hither smile. Not the John. She's imitating womanhood. Yeah, very coy. Right. This is like the scene that people always talk about when they talk about this movie. What did you think about it? I was... Honestly, the previous scene was so traumatic for me that I was still sort of processing that. And this was so quick. I was almost confused that this particular scene, that her nudity spurred so much controversy and debate, as opposed to just, I I don't, I was, I, I definitely gave pause at this point because I had been so focused on the other elements of the the film that her nudity was not something I focused on yeah and I was ready to hate this scene and I didn't I I didn't feel that it was exploitative I mean it's very complicated it's I don't I also don't want to say that it's like okay for 12 year olds to be naked in film you know like it's it's a really complicated thing to talk about um I don't know if her nudity was a necessary there at the same time, I appreciate that the film doesn't shy away from the gritty details of this reality. I think it also takes very um, precise care not to sexualize. The viewer is not in a position to sexualize her in this scene. We are, I think, repulsed by this grown man ogling her. And I think that that is the point of this scene and i think we as the viewers are also put in a position of complicity just like everyone else around her you know we feel like we can't do anything we're helpless we're just sitting on the couch watching what's happening to her then violet's mother um gets married to a john and hattie and she leaves the brothel and violet does not come with her and she continues to stay at the brothel and work. Uh, 
And this very interesting scene happens where Violet is playing with the boys her age. She looks and acts so much older than them, even though they're the same age. I mean, she's already been through so much. And I just feel like that's very realistic. I think young girls are forced to grow up faster than young boys. And there's a very interesting scene where Violet is... God, I don't even know how to say it. She's wrestling with one of the children of the servants. And she's kind of playing around with him and is trying to get him to show her his penis. Um, And his mother comes in and basically yells at her and says, you know that, not that it's wrong to play like that, but you know that um, black people and white people do not mix. They're not supposed to have sex. And she says, you know, do you ever see a black man go upstairs with one of these girls? No, you never see that. That's not how it's done. And she even invokes a religious reason for this as well. And uh, Violet says, I can do whatever I want. I don't even know what to make of this scene. What do you think? I see Violet as being just very confused by her experiences so far i think she wants deeply to relate to other children her age but in a lot of ways she's not a child because of everything she's been through and i think she wants to be attracted to these boys but their experiences are so different that it's it's almost like a game for her at this point. She asks them, you know, I, I bet I bet you've never had, like, I bet you've never done it before. It's almost as if she's trying to sort of one-up them. And of course, like, the racial dynamics here are so complicated. I'm not even sure that Violet... I mean, of course, this is a script that is written, but... It, in this scene, I'm not sure that she's conscious of any of you know these power dynamics. To me, she really just is torn between wanting to have a connection with someone her own age versus you know these very traumatic and real lived experiences that she's grown up with so far. No, totally. Yeah, I I agree. I also think that this may be obviously intentionally complex themes that are going on here because we see that i mean violet and the little white boy um what the fuck is his name red top red top yeah (laughs) um are the antagonists in this scene towards this little boy nani Mm -hmm. and i feel that you know we're supposed to think about here again the relationship between the people in this brothel and how even the most disadvantaged white people in this situation are enacting power power over this child. So Madame Nell is also horrified by Violet uh, harassing Nani in this way. Again, not because it's harassment, but because Nani is black. Yeah. Um, And 
Madame Nell has her whipped and Violet does not make a peep while she's beat. And afterwards she runs out bleeding out of this shed. We don't see it happen, by the way, which I also appreciate. She runs out of this shed where she was just whipped and she says it didn't even hurt. She's bleeding. And then she packs her bag and she runs away to Belloc's house. I just want to quickly mention that before she goes into the shed, Bollock is there photographing and he turns to Hattie and says, you know, something to the effect of like whipping a child only teaches her the same to do to others. Meanwhile, as you pointed out earlier, Annie, he slapped her hard um, in the in the earlier scene. Right. Like he's a, a complete hypocrite. So um, we're starting to sort of learn more about who he is and the kind of person he is. Right. Violet runs away to Bullock's kind of like decayed. <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> creepy New Orleans house. Um, and they begin a very strange relationship. She calls him Papa. She calls him Papa. And they've been calling him Papa the whole movie. Which Actually, we everyone calls him Papa? Yeah, everyone calls weird. him Papa. I don't know fucking why. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, You can tell she's sort of imitating her mother in these scenes with him. She's learned how to be a woman from her mother. She's um, playing at womanhood. She's teasing him. You know, she's flirting and seducing him. And he gets really pissed off at one point. Um, She jumps on his bed and breaks his bed. And (laughs) they are on the bed, this broken bed together. And she's teasing him. And he gets pissed off at her. And he says, you know, don't talk to me like that. You're talking like a whore. Which was okay before, but now it's not okay. (laughs) Typical. Um, And she says, what's wrong with whores anyway? I thought you liked us. So she's very, yeah, she's a very self-aware, self-possessed young girl. We don't see it, but her, and it's implied that her and Bilak have sex. And this scene uh, when they are kissing, I don't. I can't tell if they're actually kissing. I feel like they aren't because it's. I don't think they are. Yeah. The back of his head. Right. And I think she's sort of just tilting her head towards him. I really don't think. I think she gives him a few quick pecks on the face, but that's really that's the extent of it. Yeah, and when this scene was filmed, and when the other nude scenes were filmed, um, it was only Louis Mall and the cinematographer uh, Nyquist Nyquist in the room with her so that she would feel comfortable um and apparently keith carradine also said to her like it's not a real kiss like don't worry you're still gonna have your first kiss you know which is like also kind of creepy like the whole the whole thing is it's really complicated and creepy and i don't even know how to feel about it so the next morning violet wakes up uh, Balak is not there. He's left a note for her. We find out that she can't read. He brings her a doll. And Violet knows that it's fucked, that right. he brought her this doll. She says, like, why did you bring me a doll? She's like, do you think I'm a child? Right. Well, he says something like, every every child should have a doll. She's basically like, question mark, question mark, I am not a child, right. clearly. We just had sex, and now you're bringing me a little girl's toy. It's very confusing. Yeah, she's confused. Then he photographs her with this doll. Um, Which is such an uncomfortable scene. She looks so angry that he's making her perform her childhood in 
which, by the way, probably was not a childhood she ever really experienced. She grew up, you know, around sex, did not grow up playing with dolls, presumably, and he has her positioned very angelically in this white dress, in a bonnet, holding this doll, and she just looks so sad. She hates to be performing this version of herself for him. Yeah, I think she looks less uncomfortable in the scenes where she's naked. And that's directly contrasted with the next scene where she's posing naked for him on the couch. This is when we see more of her nudity here. And, oh, God. I got to be honest with you. Like, I, it's disturbing, but I also find it really compelling because her body is a child's body. And we're reminded of that so much in this scene she's got small pubescent breasts she barely has pubic hair um i can remember having that body like i can remember it so clearly and i really think that she looks really innocent and childlike here and it's not in a way that's like in any way supposed to elicit anything other than um, confusion in the viewer. Yeah, totally agree. This really brings me back to all the press written about her, which was so sexualized. I mean, this People article, I don't have it up anymore, but it really talks about, you know, her perfect skin, her, you know, angelic face, her eyelashes, her, I think it actually used the word supple to describe parts of her. And it's just, this scene was not at all sexual from a viewer's standpoint. So that really gave me pause. Yeah, definitely. And I'm not even saying like I condone it. I'm just saying that right. it's I, – I don't condone it, but at the same time, I sort of appreciate that they went there. It's, it's complicated as a viewer and as a woman who's experienced sexual trauma – um, from a very young age. She seems very removed from her body, almost, in this scene. She's, I, well, first of all, she's bored. <laughs> she's waiting for him to take the photo, and he's making her lie very still. So she's incredibly disinterested. And she's, I, I have felt, just now thinking about her, that she kind of, like, disassociates a little bit from him and, and from this experience of having to pose naked in this way for him. Yeah. And in this scene, they get into a fight because she's pissed off at him because he keeps making her lay still and he's being mean to her. And she takes his negatives, his uh, silver plate negatives, and she starts scratching out the faces. So this scene where she's scratching out the faces is very interesting because E.J. Bullock's actual photographs, the faces are scratched out in a lot of them. And um, it would, through research, it was found out that the, the faces had to be scratched out when the negatives were in the emulsifier. So when they were fresh. Um, so it's kind of posited here that the reason for these faces being scratched out is because of Violet. She wants to ruin his work because he's treating her really badly. And that also, I mean, 
you know, to take it to a personal level, something I have experience with of the grooming process of being with a predator um, where you love and rely on this person. And this is her new parent figure. Her mother's left her. And, you know, she calls him Papa. And there's a relationship here where she needs him. She feels like she needs him. And she also resents him. So after they have a fight, Violet goes back to the brothel. And we see a group of protesters outside the brothel. Um, they want, you know, in this time in history, the city of New Orleans, a lot of people want prostitution to be illegal. So there's a group of protesters outside and she goes in with Red Top um, into the back of the house because he says like, oh, if we don't go away, like they're going to catch us and they're going to send us to the boys and girls home. And they don't want to be caught. They they don't want to go to an orphanage. And They're free in a lot of ways. Yes. And especially during this period, children did not have rights yet. Um, so it's quite possible that being in an orphanage would have been, just the circumstances would have been very hellish. And moreover, many children died in orphanages during this time. Um, many children went missing. They were never reconnected with their birth parents. So it, the conditions were pretty horrific. Right. And that brings us again, this question of autonomy. How much autonomy do these children have and how much should they have? Violet goes in through the back and finds Madame Nell burning her money. And <laughs> Great screenshot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the servants is, um, you know, telling her, you know, you got to cut it out and get it together. And they call her the voodoo woman. I'm using that in quotes. That's what they say. The yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that character? Sure. I think she's only shown, I think this is the second time she's shown. The first, the, just to recap, the first scene, she's sort of helping the women get ready and she's like, she's helping them cleanse. Um, she's cleansing the room. She reads Violet's fortune and tells her that she's a very lucky girl. Um, in this scene, she thinks that um, Madame Nell is, what does she think she's possessed? I think, I think that was the idea. And so she's telling, she's telling the other servant to, you know, quickly clean the kitchen in Madame Nell's room to rid her of these evil spirits because truthfully she's acting like a loon. <laughs> She also, I think, in a way, is a reminder, especially in this house of white women, that they don't know anything about the very just rich cultural history of black women and black people in this region. They have their own practices and traditions and, you know, this is their land. Um... And I think her presence in these scenes just kind of make us remember that. So now the brothel is shutting down for good. It's being emptied. It's in disarray. All the women are leaving. Madame Nell is like catatonic. I mean, that's her whole life. Mm -hmm. Like, what has it all been for? She has completely lost her livelihood. And this is another thing that's a theme here is like the specter of the patriarchal um, mentality that gets that 
gets rid of and celebrates these institutions. And Madame Nell has dedicated her entire life to this. Um, and it's taken away like that from her. And now all these women, they shut it down, but they didn't find them any jobs or home. So now all these women have nowhere to go. Um, they're going to go to Chicago with Clog. He's saying that they're all going to go to Chicago. And they're all going together, it's implied. Um, and kind of going to be like kind of a, a family, almost. Belloc shows up at the brothel and asks Violet to marry him. He doesn't really ask. He says, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> they get married. The preacher does not really bat an eye at even though Violet is visibly a child, he asks very standard questions. Who are your parents? You know, what do they do? But doesn't stop this, again, as you were saying, the sort of bystander reaction. So they get married with all of the other sex workers, former sex worker women around. Um, and they have like their own little party where Bilak is the only man. Clog is gone. He's not around. It, it's like happy, but it's creepy because he's marrying a 12 year old. They have like a little wedding party um, by the bayou. And we see Violet and Billock back now at the house as husband and wife. Um, and she's acting like a kid because she's a kid. And she's also taking on a lot of the traits of her mother. Yeah. She's treating the servants really poorly, which Hattie was known to do. And which, interestingly enough, Violet had a very, I think, positive relationship, adoring relationship with um, many of the, the black men and women who worked in this, um, in, in her previous home. So this seems to be a new development in her personality. Yeah, and I also think ultimately she's just taking on all these negative characteristics of her mother. And she's also, um, there's there's this theme here of punching down. She is such a disenfranchised, helpless person. And she's punching down on the people yeah. that are more disenfranchised than her. Violet's mother, Hattie, now shows up at the house in all her finery with her new husband and her baby brother and wants to take her away. And Balak has a fit. He says he can't live without her. You're mine. Yeah, you're mine. Yeah, I can't live without her. That's that's simply how it is, he says. And uh, Hattie doesn't care. <laughs> She's like, well, I didn't consent to this. And legally, I need to consent for a child this young to get married. Um, and they want to take her away and they want her to go to school. And I mean, it's I want that for her. It's also naive to assume that she's now going to be able to just go back to being a normal child. And I think that that's, you know, we're supposed to feel that way. Also a lot of respectability politics, a lot of talk about Hattie, quote unquote, overcoming her former life as a sex worker, um, being supposedly redeemed by this wealthy man who has given her a big house and access to, to you know anything she could really imagine and want i it's it's complicated you want of course violet to have a better life and to be educated um but of course all of these things are very coded violet leaves no problem right she really doesn't care she at first is like well you could come with us 
she doesn't want to be with him. She wants to be with her mother. And because she's 12. Yeah, because she's 12. <laughs> and he was really just a substitute for a parent figure anyway. And he sort of acquiesces and she leaves. Um, and the last scene is Hattie and her new husband and the baby brother and Violet at the train station. And the new husband is taking photos of of the family. This little portable camera, not this sort of cumbersome one that Belloc used to use also. We open the movie with a shot of Brooke Shields' face, yeah. and we close the movie with a close-up shot of her face. And she looks... God, I don't even know. What would, how would you describe that? She looks stunned. She looks completely jaded, I think. In the first, in the opening scene, as you mentioned, I think she was pretty horrified by what she was seeing. And now she just looks so tired, almost angry. I also think she's a little bit traumatized by the idea of having her photo taken. Everyone else is moving and she is very, very still, just as Balak had told her to do so many times before. Yes, that's true. And I would also say that I think she looks like very uncomfortable to be in all these clothes. And she's not used to it. I mean, the whole movie, she's like in her underwear. Mm -hmm. And I think she is realizing that she's entering into this new world that she doesn't know. And it's going to be a very restrictive mode of womanhood that she's never known before um, in this world that she lives in women have a lot of autonomy um they do and they don't right it's complicated but they are allowed to be sexual beings they are allowed to be naked freely around each other and around men mm -hmm. and they come and go as they please they do what they want when they want um and there's no pretense no about sexuality not at all yeah and sh in a way She's losing a lot of freedom in this moment. Yeah. And she, I mean, her and Red Top even call the protesters Puritans. Like, they, you know, they're children, and I don't want to assign too much complexity to their views of sex work. But as someone who fully supports sex work and doesn't believe that it's an inherently damaging thing for people to experience... I think that in a lot of ways, Violet is going to be moving into this very restrictive kind of sex negative environment instead of being in this damaging but also very free environment for women. It's so complicated. I feel, I feel very sad for a lot of these characters and especially Violet. I feel... That, as you said, she had a lot of autonomy in many ways, but she was also, this is the card that she was dealt in this life as a poor woman. Um, and I don't think that, I don't think it was her choice. She was not given a choice no. um, to become a sex worker. Um, and that is where I, I, I feel for her. Yeah. 
And she's not given a choice in anything. No. She's not given a choice to be a sex worker. She's not given a choice to be a respectable, quote-unquote, no. quote respectable citizen. Um, she's really has very little agency in this movie. So we've talked about the, the themes that we see. We've dissected some scenes. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything that we didn't talk about? I mean, truthfully, this this really this movie has stayed with me, and I think I'll be thinking about it for a long time. I am curious to hear more about um, in Brooke's own words how she felt about playing this character and being in this role. We had talked to briefly Annie and I at the end of the movie, just that you know. Every 12-year-old is very different, um, and I think this was a incredibly complicated, intense, mature role to play, and I think that it seemed she understood all of these complexities, and it showed. I would have loved to read more about her experience on the film at 12 years old. So I wonder if that exists. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to read her thesis and what she has to say about it. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Girls, Guts, and Giallo. Pretty, Louis Malle's Pretty Baby, 1978. Um, watch for a new podcast every Friday. Give me a follow on Instagram as Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm also on Twitter as Girls, Guts, and Giallo, and Twitter scares me. And you can also follow my personal account at Fat Goth on Instagram. You can also send me an email at girlsgutsandgiallo at gmail.com. And now I'm going to play some music from Pretty Baby. Make a note to edit that in. <laughs> and that'll play us out here. Thank you for listening. I'm Annie Rose Malamet.